So I wanted to kind of introduce our new Christmas series to you. It's called A Series of Unstoppable Events. And today we're going to look at the story of the wise men. Next week we'll talk about how the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. And then the following week we'll talk about the angel appearing to Joseph and telling him to take Mary as his wife and not to shun her or put her aside because she was found already to be pregnant. And that was quite uh, ununderstandable to him. And then uh, the last week we're going to talk about the shepherds. And what I love about each one of these stories is in each one we see the sovereignty of God at work. That things are going on on a human level with people making plans and doing stuff, but that God is ultimately in control. And that his purposes and his plans are still being accomplished. The second thing I love is that we see God speaking and revealing himself to people. Revealing his plan. And that's astounding because as the Old Testament era closed out, there was a period of silence for 400 years where God didn't talk to prophets or to those who were accustomed to hearing from him, to anybody. And then as the New Testament era dawns and, and starts, we see God talking like, like crazy to everybody, to shepherds, to wise men, to ordinary people. And as these people listen and respond to the call of God, they get involved in his plans and purposes. They become part of his grand story. And so that's so encouraging for us as we've just come out of a series about hearing from God and asking God, what is it that he wants us to know and what does he want us to do? This fits right in with that. So today we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 2, story of the wise men. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. But I want to give you some background information before we dive in. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God had wise men, uh, he led them from the east to come and pay homage to the Christ child. And the Greek word in our text for wise men is magi. That's where we get that word. It describes these men. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that they were originally from a Median tribe. The Medes were part of the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iraq, and at one point, they tried to overthrow the Persian Empire and substitute the, the power of the Medes, but their attempt failed. And pretty much from that time on, they lost any aspirations or ambitions for power and prestige, and they became a tribe of priests. The Magi were in Persia what the Levites were in Israel, a priestly tribe. They became the teachers and instructors of the Persian kings. No sacrifice could be offered unless one of the Magi was present. And they became to be known over time as men of holiness and men of wisdom. In ancient times, unlike today, everybody believed in astrology. They believed that they could foretell the future from the stars. They believed that a person's destiny was actually settled by the star under which he or she was born. And it's not difficult to understand how they came about this belief because the stars pursued their unvarying courses. They represented order in the universe. So if there suddenly appeared some brilliant star, if, if the unvarying order of the heavens was broken by some special phenomenon, it would seem to point that God was breaking into his design and order in order to reveal something special, something majestic. These magi probably had been studying Jewish texts such as Numbers 
in order to correlate their astronomical observations with the birth of a Jewish king. Numbers 24:17 says, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will arise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. And it will crush the heads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls of the people of Sheth. So there was this knowledge, not only in Israel, but in all of the Middle East, that a king was going to come out of Israel. Somebody, somebody huge that was going to basically rule the world. And though it might seem extraordinary to us that these wise men, these magi, would travel 700 miles in order to pay homage to a foreign king, not just their own king, at the time of Christ's birth, there was actually just this fascination, this, this captivation and expectation in the ancient world with this world ruler coming out of Israel. Even the Roman historians knew this. Suetonius wrote this. He said, There is spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was destined at this time for a man coming out of Judea to rule the whole world. Tacitus records the same belief. He said, at this very time in the East, there was to grow a powerful uh, ruler who would come from Judea and would acquire a universal empire. Finally, Josephus writes that the Jews believed that one from their country would become governor of the inhabitable world. So there was this frenzy, this expectation, this captivation with this mysterious king rising up in the East, particularly out of Judea, and ruling the world. And everybody seemed to know this. The story of the wise men really begins in September of 3 BC. They come from the east, probably from Babylon. Some believe, and I, I tend to hold this belief, that these men were the, the residual, the leftover of the school of Daniel. When Daniel was taken off into captivity along with his other Israelites back in the Old Testament, Daniel never left. And Daniel rose to power, and he ended up training uh, the wise men that were assistants to the king. And most likely, um, these magi were the result, the modern-day uh, carryover from Daniel's time. And so they travel 700 miles, uh, possibly from Babylon to Jerusalem, about the round-trip distance from here to San Francisco, and all of that on a camel. It took them over a year to do this. And that's quite a longing, quite an expectation to go and find a foreign king, not even your own king, because of this prophecy and these records. And then they travel another five miles further south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. There's a documentary called The Star of Bethlehem that um, is about an hour long and it's fascinating. It's Bethlehemstar.net. You can find all about it. You can even order a copy. And it's one of the best presentations of our text that I've ever seen. And it does such a good job illuminating the text for us that I actually want to play a clip from it today. It's about eight minutes long, so you're not getting the hour version. You're getting eight minutes. And I never show something eight minutes long, but it's so good, I want you to get the details. So I invite you to take out your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2, Take out your outline, and our speaker, who is actually a, uh, an attorney 
by profession. He was asked to teach Sunday school at his church, and he got into so much study of astronomy and the heavens and stuff. He found out all this fascinating stuff that he's going to share. And there are nine distinctive characteristics found in our text that are clues for this Bethlehem star. So I invite you to look at your Bible, take out your notes, and let's watch this together. When I began uh, really pushing hard the research after having found the stuff in Craig Chester's article, I wanted to go further. So that means I had to really puzzle it through. You know, it's the only way I feel safe making a presentation is if I pushed it all the way back and I know what I'm saying is so. And I've got the back end filled in. So I went to Matthew and I treated it like it was the Bible. <laughs> I mean, that was the real set of clues right there. And, and most researchers don't pay that much attention to Matthew only to the extent they see, oh, there was a star. They basically don't treat the Bible seriously. You know, they find out there's a star, they see Matthew chapter two, and then they throw away the Bible, you know, and just start looking around in the sky. And for that reason, nearly everything in the night sky has been proposed as the star of Bethlehem at some point or another. Nearly everything. I wanted to go through and see, let's mine this for data. I'm looking for data points here. I'm looking for clues to solve a mystery. And so I went through Matthew very, very carefully and found that if you, if you pay close attention, there are nine characteristics of the star. That's a fair amount of data. When you have that much data, you can quickly eliminate a whole lot of things that other people are proposing. Why? Well, because I'm paying attention to Matthew. And I'm very conservative, too, about this issue. So if we find something in the sky that you know, maybe fulfills eight, uh, I'm going to say, well, that's interesting, but it's not the star. It has to com completely line up with Scripture for me to think it's really the star. In fact, when you guys go home, if you get interested in this, you go home and you Google this deal, you're gonna get a bunch of weird stuff coming up, you know, occult, strange, bizarre stuff. Fortunately, in most of the major search engines, my site's gonna be very near the top because it's very well rated. So you can find my site and I encourage you to go there. My site is called Bethlehemstar.net. So let's go to the second chapter of Matthew and look at the clues. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, so you see again how important it is when Herod died. If Herod died in 4 BC, you look in later years, but we think he died in 1, so we're looking in 2 and 3 BC. Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. Okay, gotta ask, what's a magus? Same word root as our word magic. Are they magicians? You know, the one showed up in Acts and he was a bad actor, so some of them were bad. We don't know that much about the Magi. We don't even really know how many there were. We think there were three only because there are three gifts mentioned in scripture. But we do know something about Magi, at least, because we have the writings of a, a Jewish philosopher and historian named Philo. Philo lived in Alexandria, Egypt, in the large Jewish community there, and he was a, 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 a copious writer. And his works have made it through to the present day. I've got a, you know, a huge compendium of, of Philo at home. Most first century histories have been lost. That's the truth, because we burned our, the world's major libraries in various conflicts over the years. But Philo made it through, and Philo does discuss Magi. And he describes a particular school of Magi. He calls it the Eastern School. And these Magi, he praises. He says, these guys understand the natural order, and they're able to explain the natural order to others. And, and we, they were, according to Philo, probably what we, we might call something like proto-scientists. They were the scientists of their day. At least this fancy Eastern School of Magi was of that character. Now, we don't know that these Magi in scripture are from that Eastern School, but don't you think it's interesting that Matthew wants us to know they came from the East? I think he's telling us these Magi were from the Good School. Impressive Magi. I have a theory about this Eastern school of Magi that perhaps they were descended from Daniel's day. Daniel never went home. He stayed there until he died. 
and I'm sure was uh, training people to come up behind him. That may well be the Eastern school that gets described in Philo. The Magi asked a question that's just loaded, loaded with clues. They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Those three clues right there. Did you see him go by? Whatever the Magi saw in the sky suggested to them birth, the Jewish nation, and kingship. Next, they say, we saw his star in the east. I'm going to stop there because I have to correct the translation a little bit. When it says we saw his star in the east, okay, sure, they were in the east. And so, yes, they saw his star when they were in the east. But that's not the sense of the Greek. The Greek says they saw the star on Anatole, which means rising in the east. And that's a clue because most stars rise in the east because of the rotation of the earth, of course. But not all stars do that, like pole stars don't. So that's another clue. And then they say, and we've come to worship him. If the Magi were, in fact, of Jewish descent, that would explain why they'd be looking for Jewish signs in the sky and why they would be excited enough at what they saw to get on their camels and ride 700 miles to Jerusalem. And it, all, it would also explain why when they got to Jerusalem, in addition to asking questions, they wanted to worship the Jewish king. Who wants to worship a Jewish king? Perhaps someone of Jewish descent. Watch Herod's reaction. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Everybody who heard the story that the Magi's presented was disturbed. That's a, that is a clue also. It's kind of a hidden clue. It comes back again in a few minutes, but let me just talk about that for a moment and tell you why it's a clue. Um, I'll back into it by getting you to participate. How many people in here have seen the Milky Way? And almost everybody here. But here's the deal. Um, the Milky Way is not visible in most parts of the country for several reasons, light pollution and air pollution being the two major ones. Um, but in ancient times, they had neither problem. Um, for example, they didn't have bright lights like this. The brightest thing anyone ever saw at night was a flame. So their eyes were adjusted. Plus, they didn't have air pollution, which cuts down visibility. They didn't have smog and stuff like that back then. As a result, they all had seen the Milky Way. Everybody had seen the Milky Way and were familiar with the stars and the constellations and all because the star, you know, they were perfectly available to the naked eye, unlike most of our cities. Another reason they knew about the, st the, the stars is it's a hot, arid place to live in the Middle East. And in the summertime, people used to sleep on their roofs. That way they got off the street level for a little bit of security and got out of the hot house and just could lay there in the relative cool. And as you lay there on your back, what are you seeing? I mean, the internet, like you people? You know, no, they're looking at the stars all night, every night. As long as they're up, they're seeing stars. And so people understood the sky. Now here's why that's a clue. When they heard about the star from the Magi, they were shocked. That's a kind of clue, and I'm gonna come back to it in a minute. It appears twice. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Now what's gonna happen is his chief priests and teachers, they're gonna quote the ancient prophet Micah. And it's a faithful prophecy too that Micah makes. In fact, if Micah hadn't made this prophecy, Herod wouldn't have killed all the little babies in Bethlehem. The king's experts say, in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet Micah has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's how Herod decided to kill the babies. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. That's the second time one clue is coming by. He doesn't know when the star appeared. He had to ask. That's an important clue. And then the next clue is that it's associated with an exact timing. Okay, we're building up our nine points. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Two more clues. It went ahead of them as they went from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. 
Let's do that one first. You may not know the geography of Israel. You don't need a map. You don't need a star. You don't need a guide to find Bethlehem from Jerusalem. It's five miles south on the main road. You can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem. So it's just five miles south, so we know the star, whatever it was, had to be ahead of them as they were headed due south, okay? Oh, you know what else? There's another clue I have to pull out of this for you. Remember that they saw the star when they were in the east, and then they traveled to Jerusalem, and then they saw the star still? That means the star endured over time. And then here's the tough one. Here's the toughest of all the nine points. Until it stopped over the place where the child was. Can a star stop? You wouldn't think so, but it can and did, and I'm going to show you. You now know more about the star than any of your neighbors. I promise you, you now know the nine points that identify the star. We're going to pick it up in a minute. But <clears throat> have you ever drawn that much material out of Matthew 2? The specificity, the, the exactness. There's so many clues within our text, and it's fascinating. It's exciting. Let's go over those nine clues real quick on your outline. Clue number one is the star speaks of birth. Point number two, the star speaks of kingship. Point number three, it speaks of the Jewish nation. You might have reversed some of those because he kind of reversed the order, but birth, kingship, Jewish nation. Point number four, the star rose in the east, like most stars, but not all stars. As he says, some stars don't follow that rotation of the earth. Point number five, it appeared at an exact point in time. Point number six, Herod didn't know about it. He had to ask about it. So it would speak to the fact that it wasn't something kind of uh, extraordinary, but maybe something natural that he just wasn't paying attention to. Uh, Point number seven, it endured over a considerable period of time. And point number eight, it went ahead of the Magi as they traveled from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And finally... The star stopped, which he's going to explain. Uh, he explains in the, in the documentary in greater detail. But scientists today think that retrograde motion was happening when a planet or a star is doing kind of a halo, like an elliptical, and it's going in one direction. And then it reaches a point, and it stops and reverses rotation. And so there's that point in time where it stops. And kind of like the hands of a clock, it seems kind of delayed to us, because it's carried out over a period of time, but the star actually stops. And so now we're going to return to this, and it's only going to be one minute, but he's going to sum up the whole chronology and sequence of stuff here so you can get this. Let's watch. Now what I'm saying is that that is quite, literally, quite possibly the date of the first Christmas. Did it have any meaning to them? No, it had no meaning. The date had no meaning to them because they didn't even use our calendar system. I mean, but it does have meaning to us. It could well be assigned to us. Um, let me give you, give you the chronology now. In September of 3 BC, Jupiter crowns Regulus in Leo, uprises Virgo, clothed in the sun, new moon birthed at her feet, Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. Nine months later, the biggest planet goes together with the brightest planet to make the brightest star anyone alive had ever seen. Where? Right over Jerusalem as it sets. The Magi ride. They get there uh, sometime around November, they go to Herod and they say, we've seen the star, where's the baby king? Uh, Herod says, uh, Bethlehem. So they're leaving uh, the gates of Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem, five mile trek. Uh, and they look up and there's the star, there's Jupiter, right over this little town of Bethlehem. One of the guys, he's the guy who does the math for the group. He's going, wait, 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 wait. 
It's in full retrograde. It's stopped right over the little town of Bethlehem. They ride down to Bethlehem in 1225, 2 BC. We know that's the date because that's when the star stopped. They're carrying gifts, remember? Frankincense, gold, and myrrh. They find the baby boy. Is he living in a manger? No, 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 no. He's moved. He's in a, he's in a house now. He's described in Greek as a pideon. He's a toddler. They find the baby boy and they present these fabulous gifts to him on what turns out to be the first Christmas, 1225 of 2 BC. So he goes into greater detail. He's using an astronomy program called Starry Night. And it's, this program uses the math and the science of Kepler and Newton. And so it's not approximations, it's exact moments in time. And it's fascinating to watch this. I encourage you to look at it. But the star actually stops over Bethlehem on 1225 of 2 BC. And that's the exact time that the wise men presented the gifts to Christ. So Christ had been born before that, probably in September. That's what we're guessing. <clears throat> so he had moved from the manger into the house, and they present these gifts, and, and all this is going on. And it's just amazing the preciseness that we're able to, to look at the planets and what they were doing through different years of time. Fascinating. Well, I want to draw some significance out of all of this. And, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that stands out to me as being hugely significant is that God was silent for 400 years. And with the dawning of the New Testament era, all of a sudden he's speaking. He's speaking to anybody and everybody, to ordinary people. And God spoke to these wise men, these magi, who were Gentiles. They were living outside of Israel. Perhaps they were of Jewish descent, probably. But God speaks to them. And we don't know, actually, if it was their studies and their astronomy that led them, or if God actually spoke to them. But he certainly spoke to them at the end of our text when he told them not to go back to Herod, that Herod was duping them and using them, and so he told them to go home by a different way. But God is speaking and revealing himself, which is so significant given the series that we've just been going through and kind of parsing that out. Almost no one believes that Christ was born on 1225, on what we celebrate as Christmas. But the wise men presented their gifts to him, on 1225 of 2 BC, and so that was really the first Christmas, and that's really what we celebrate. Also, there's good reason to believe that, given the accuracy of this program and charting out when Christ was born, it is very, very possible that Christ was conceived on December 25th of 3 BC, also known as the Feast of Dedication during this time, the Festival of Lights. And what an amazing symbolic message God is sending that the light of the world is implanted by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary at the very same time that the Jews are celebrating the Festival of Lights. The Festival of Lights, during the Festival of Lights, also known as Hanukkah, each night, each of eight nights, a candle is lit on a special menorah or a candelabra. And there's a special ninth candle called the shamash, or the servant candle, which is used to light all of the other candles. And to me, that's very symbolic of Christ, because this candle is uh, often in the center of the candelabra, and it's higher in position than all of the other candles, and it's used to light each additional candle, one on the first night, two on the second night, until all eight are lit. And traditionally, they're lit from left to right. A special blessing, thanking God, is said before and after lighting the candles. And a special Jewish hymn is often sung. 
And then the menorah is put in the front window of houses so that people passing can see the lights and remember the story of Hanukkah. And it reminds me of Jesus saying, you know, a city set on a hill cannot be hid, but it shines for all to see. And so let your light shine before all men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Anyone who lights a candle doesn't put a covering over it, but they light it for all to see. And Jesus himself said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Matthew chapter 4 records Old Testament prophecy, saying the people who were sitting in darkness will see a great light. Those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light is dawned. Simeon, the old man who would go to the temple daily and was promised by God that he would live to see the Messiah, the Christ child, when he finally meets Christ for the first time and holds him in his arms. He says this, he prays this prayer in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. He says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So amazing symbolism going on here. We read scripture like the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And we think, oh, that's nice. And we have no idea that stars and planets are actually telling the story of God and creation and his his majestic work. So quite possibly Jesus was conceived on December 25th of 3 B.C., And according to this program, it looks like he was born on September 29th of 2 B.C. during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was the celebration of the dedication of the Second Temple. And it was also a celebration remembering the Jews wandering in the wilderness, how they would set up temporary shelters and living places as they journeyed along. And all of this adds tremendous beauty to John chapter 1, verse 14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what our English translations read. But the Greek is literally, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Literally pitched tent. And so how amazing that God pitches tents in the midst of humanity at the very time when they're celebrating the festival of tabernacles. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says, Now the main point in what has been said is this, We have such a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. A chapter later in Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, we read this, So Christ has now become our great high priest, over all good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats or calves, he entered the most holy place once and for all and secured our redemption forever. So amazing symbolism going on with not only the conception of Christ, but also the birth of Christ. Let's go back to our text now in Matthew 2, and we're going to finish it out. The, he leaves it off in his study in verse 9, but we're going to pick it up in verse 9. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, this is how it closes out. 
And hearing the king, the magi went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood, retrograde motion, over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, like as much joy as is possible. They were jazzed. They had traveled 700 miles on camel, and everything panned out exactly as they had hoped and anticipated. Verse 11, after coming into the house, because Jesus was born previously, he's not in the manger anymore, he's inside the house now, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to Christ gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. God speaks. God reveals himself to these, these wise men who were seeking with all of their hearts after the Christ child, the Messiah, and they find him. Well, I want to draw some application, and and the question that I have for us today is, what's our reaction to the birth of Christ? Maybe as Brittany said, it's like, yeah, whatever, every year, this is what we celebrate. I know the story, I've heard it a thousand times. Is that our reaction, or is it perhaps, God, every year, show, show me something new. Show me something new in the story, like all of this amazing detail layered in Matthew 2 that I've just glossed over before and just kind of read and said, oh, that's interesting. Not realizing those could actually possibly be data points and clues as to the Bethlehem star. God, show me something new. Perhaps our reaction today is that Christ's birth and presence in this world troubles us. It threatens us. It threatened Herod. Because he's like, who is this one who's been born king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. And we're going we're gonna to study this in a later uh, study in this Unstoppable series. But Herod was one of the most paranoid, schizophrenic kings that Israel ever had. He killed his wife and three of his sons because he thought they were trying to overthrow him. The guy was amazingly paranoid. So you can imagine just the frenzy. When it says all Israel was troubled... Because they knew he was going to kill all the babies. He was killing all the kids two years of age or younger because he he didn't want this Messiah that threatened his position as king. Who is this one born king of the Jews? And perhaps Christ threatens and troubles us because he disrupts and challenges our lifestyle, our priorities, our values. It's hard to continue living the way we do with a knowledge of who he is and what he expects of us in his word. And it kind of upsets things. Or perhaps our posture is one of worship, like the wise men, where we're truly seeking, asking God to reveal himself to us and understanding that God is our creator, is the rightful owner of all of our gifts and talents and treasures, and we are to present those at his feet in worship every day and and however he calls us to do that. As Craig said in the video, early tradition tells us that there were maybe 12 magi, but over time it became almost universally accepted that there were three magi. And and more than any other fact, probably because there were three gifts, they assumed there were three magi. But each of the gifts that the wise men brought to the Christ child represents a characteristic of Jesus and his work. The first gift of gold is the gift of a king. The Roman philosopher Seneca 
tells us that in Parthia, it was the custom that no one could ever approach the king without a gift. And the main gift to bring a king was the king of all metals, which was gold. The second gift, frankincense, is the gift for a priest. It was in the temple worship and at the temple sacrifices that the sweet perfume of frankincense was used. The function of a priest is to open the way to God for men and for women. That's why the Latin word pontifex actually means bridge builder. That a a priest is supposed to be a bridge builder between humanity and God. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplished as our ultimate high priest. He opened the way to God. He made it possible for us to enter into the very presence of God. And that final gift, myrrh, is the gift for one who is about to die. Because myrrh was used to embalm the bodies of the dead. So we have gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, and myrrh for one who is to die. And these three gifts were the gifts that the wise men, even at the cradle of Christ, presented to him. And they foretold that he was to be the true king, that he was to be the perfect high priest, and in the end, he was to be the supreme savior of the world. Let's pray.